the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. God, the Holy Spirit, is going to work in your life as well. And so we want to introduce you to someone who is altogether lovely, our Savior. But to do that, we want to learn the Word of God. And so I'm calling our two-part series, Come and See. And it's really words that the Lord Jesus Christ uses, come and see. And so we're going to look through a portion of Scripture, but I want to lay the backdrop up before we actually go verse by verse through this passage. First of all, there are two Johns that are in the book of John here, the Gospel of John. One is... John the Baptist. Now, he is referred to many times in the early part of the Gospel of John. Sometimes he's referred to as John the Baptist. Other times it's just John. The other John is John the Beloved or John the Beloved One. Now, that is a different John, and that's the one who's actually writing this particular Gospel. So that's John the Beloved One. What you won't find is his name in this gospel at all. He's very humble. He keeps his name out of it. But we know through the writings of other gospels and other places that he was the disciple or Jesus' disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved or the disciple who leaned on Jesus' bosom. So we see those little marks identifying that this would be John, the beloved one, who's the writer. So as I talk about John today... I want you to know that I'm going to be speaking about both of the Johns, John the Baptist and John. So when I say John, I'm talking about the writer of John. When I talk about John the Baptist, I'll use that, John the Baptist, so you'll understand. Also, at the early part of this book, those of you that are kind of new into this, we're beginning what we're going to call a one week in the life of Jesus as he's launching his earthly ministry. We're beginning at day three now because we've already covered a couple of the other days. It's certainly amazing to see how busy the Lord is, busy about His Father's business. He was all focused on helping people get to know Him and to have a better life and to really become a disciple of His. And so we're in day number three as we cover all of this. Now, John the Baptist is going to set us up for that in a moment. But to let you know a little bit more, I'm going to be talking about discipleship specifically more this week and next week. So it might be good for you to know what the word disciple means. It comes from a Greek word, which is the word metateo. Now, you don't need to know the Greek as much as you need to know what it means. A disciple means a learner, student, or pupil. It could mean a follower, but that's more of a loose sense of the word. It's meaning more of a learner, pupil, or student. Now, a person doesn't really become a disciple until they said, I want to learn. I want to know more about you or what you're teaching. And so you're going to read about different disciples. This section we're going to be covering this week and next week is going to talk about how that Jesus selected five of his 12 disciples. We would call them apostles, but we're going to use the term disciples. We're going to look at five of them. Today, we're only going to look at three of them, and next week, we're going to look at two of them. Now, in doing that, we're going to look at the different styles of evangelism. There'll be three different ways he calls them. Then we're going to look at 
four of the barriers that these guys had and how Jesus got around those barriers to bring them to himself. And again, there are five folks that we're going to look at. Now, why that's important, not so much the numbers as much as it is, that the Lord uses different styles to call people into his forever family. He also realizes that there are various barriers that we might have, and he's going to show us, maybe just by his action, how he approached those barriers so that you might look at those barriers of the people you're trying to reach as well to help them to become a believer in Christ and then soon to become a disciple of the Lord. So that's what we're going to be looking at in the weeks to come to see how he did all of this. Now, I want you to know this is a good time for us to be studying this. I believe it's under God's divine time because in a couple of weeks, it's April Fool's Day, April 1st on Sunday, and we're calling it April Friends Day, trying to reach our friends. Do you know what happens the Sunday after that? It's Resurrection Sunday. So two Sundays are on the map, on the calendar already, on reaching other people. And the next two weeks, as we're coming into those two days, we're going to be talking about reaching others through evangelism. So for those of you that know Christ as Savior, it's not one of those ho-hum days, I already know all of this stuff because I'm a Christian. It's more equipping you to reach others for Christ. Those of you who are on the outside, you might be listening as well because it's possible that that sweet, small voice of the Lord might be whispering to you through the Word and letting you know that now's the time for you to come and follow Jesus Christ as well. So with all of that in mind as our backdrop, we want to show you how that Jesus Christ loved his people, as well at the same time he had a message that could really change their life. So let's now begin at who are the first two disciples that he's calling. The first ones would be Andrew and then John. Andrew and then John. Not John the Baptist, but John. So let's look at this passage of Scripture again and open it up just a little bit. Verse 35 says, And again the next day John stood with two of his disciples. Now, that John would be John the Baptist. So John the Baptist, he had a following before Jesus Christ came on the scene. And that following that he had, he had some that were really students of his, that really listened to what he had to say and wanted to learn. They were called his disciples. Now, we know in the context, those two would be John, who wrote this book. At the same time, it would be Andrew. Drop down to verse 42, and if you want to, you can draw a line there between the phrase two of his disciples and then verse 40. And it says, and one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. So that's why we say the first two that he called was Andrew and John, both of them. And the method that he's using, this evangelistic method that John the Baptist is using, is what we're going to call here the preacher's method. This is where someone who knows the Lord and wants others to know the Lord speaks to the people and gets them to turn themselves toward the Lord. Let's look at it, if you will, in verse 36. And here's what you read. It says, And looking at Jesus, as Jesus walked, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And then it stops there before he goes into what the two disciples did after that. And that's what I want to talk about for just a moment when it says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, he spoke to Andrew and John, and those were guys that pretty well knew what the Jewish context was about when you looked at Jesus and you said, Behold the Lamb of God. You see, here's what the Jewish people knew, and maybe some of you might know this as well. In the economy of God, helping people to get to really know God, he said that their sins had to be forgiven. And in order for their sins to be forgiven, a sacrifice had to be done. There had to be a blood sacrifice. Now, I know you hear that, and it sounds like a lot of religious gobbledygook, forgiven of sins, a blood sacrifice. It sounds kind of weird, kind of a bloody thing. But I think you need to know a little bit more of the depth of this. First of all, by having something that is alive and then having it slain and blood then dropping out of it, out of an approved animal, to do that to an animal is horrible. 
Now, I don't want you to think in terms of doing this to your pets, but in your own mind, you know what it's like to lose a pet or have a pest, a pet, pest, a pet leave you. You know how hard that is. Well, he's right now making the contrast to show you, do you realize that God wants to have a relationship with you and your sin is so dramatic that the only way to get your attention to show you that this has to be paid for, it's through the death and the shedding of blood. Now, he takes it all the way back. And if you remember, Abraham had his son, Isaac. And so he said, Abraham said, don't worry, Isaac, the Lord is going to provide himself as a lamb, as a separate sacrifice. Then later on, you're going to go into the time when he gave out all the laws. And he said, in order for sins to be atoned for, that there had to be right animals that were slain. And going back to the Passover, that the Passover lamb had to be slain and the blood applied to the doorpost. So all of them are hearing about the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the sacrifice of the lamb. But now listen carefully. Even though those lambs and the approved animals are sacrificed for the atonement for the sins to show the drama of the sinfulness of man and how horrible it is when you have to slay an animal to show this, that future there would be another lamb that would be slain. So now you go into Isaiah and Isaiah says that the Messiah, now that's a key phrase in a moment, the Messiah now would be one who would be taken like a lamb to the slaughter. So what he does now, God, he ups the ante. So when he says the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the earth, sin of the world, sin of the people, he says, all right, here, you have these earthly lambs. Now we're going to show you that it had to be a Messiah, just like these animals had to be approved. It couldn't be just any animal that died. It had to be certain animals that were without blemish that had to die at a certain time and done a certain way to show you the sincerity and the severity of the action of sin and what it needs to be done. So now he moves it to the Messiah. Now, when Jesus Christ came, We know that he's referred to as the Messiah, the Lamb of God. But going back to the Jews, and I know this is a little heavy, so just stay with me so you understand when you read the Lamb of God, it's not just, oh, he's just a nice little man who's like a lamb that he died kind of a raw deal when he died. No, this is all part of God's economy for the payment for the sin of the world. So now the Jews, they were looking for this Messiah. What they really wanted was someone who'd be their king, their Messiah, the one that would save them from their political uh, problems, their economic problems, their social problems, looking to take care of a better life here. And yes, somewhere tucked away in the Bible, there was some talk about this Messiah being the one who'd pay for sin, but they really weren't caring enough about that as they were about the earthly life that they they were living and they wanted better. So now John, though, knowing the Jewish context, knowing what God was saying... He was saying, now, now I want you to look at the Lamb of God. Now, he's the true Messiah that would take away the sin of the world. And that's a very interesting phrase because a couple of weeks ago, I think I shared with you about a man named Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is known often as the last Puritan. He died in the late 1800s. He's also known as the Prince of Preachers. I wish I had time to tell you his biography to show you how many thousands and thousands of people that would come to hear him preach without a microphone. The largest church that he had. George Whitfield would preach to great crowds, but most of them were outside. Then you'd have others that would preach to crowds like um, Charles Wesley or uh, uh, John Wesley out to other people. But it was Spurgeon who had to build a huge building in London to do this. But before he became a preacher, he was much like many of your teenage sons. They had godly heritage. Father, grandfather were very much committed to the Lord in many ways, but they saw their young son, grandson, who knew about the Lord but didn't know the Lord, who kind of played with Christianity but didn't own Christianity. So just like you parents, they really prayed for Charles Spurgeon, that he would come to faith. Now, Charles, in his own way, was probably a seeker. 
like a lot of people are in the world today, a seeker drawn to God by the Lord himself. Well, it happened to be that Charles Spurgeon, in an evening service, oddly enough, was headed to go to church. And when he headed out to church, he couldn't get to the church because the snowstorm was so heavy that it blocked the roadways. So now as he's shuffling his way through the storm of the, of the snowstorm, he's thinking, what am I going to do? And off down an alley in an old Methodist church, he hears some singing in there. And he thought, well, if I can't make it to this church, I might as well go to this other church. So he then stumbles into this small little church down an alley. And when he sat there, it was just salt and pepper with only a half a dozen people. Even the pastor himself couldn't make it to the service because of the snowstorm. So they had one of the laymen, like some of you guys here, that kind of know the word and you kind of get tagged to say, you know what, you know the word better than anybody else. Pastor's not able to come. Why don't you share the word? So here's this stammering tongue guy whom we'll never know until we get to heaven, who loved the Lord, loved the book, and he saw the people that were out there and put together a message almost on the fly. Now, again, the Holy Spirit sovereignly is working this all out because as he's going through this, he takes them to Isaiah 45, verse 22, that says, the Lord speaking, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am the only God. And he kept hammering that and hammering that. And then this speaker, this Christian lay leader, looks down at a 14-year-old boy in the crowd as this 14-year-old boy is now just kind of shocked at what he's hearing. And he says, young man, you look right now that you're very disturbed, that there's something going on inside of you that is really causing you great confusion. I want you to look to Jesus. You look to him right now and be saved. You look at him on the cross. You see the blood dripping off of his hands. You look away from your good works. You look away from anything else that you think can save you. But look, 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 look only on Jesus and be saved. Spurgeon then later writes and he says, I looked in my mind at Jesus and it was like I stared until I couldn't stare any longer. And it was that day that I trusted Christ. And all I kept thinking is that God sovereignly used the praying parents for this boy, a man who happened to be in a congregation where a pastor couldn't show up, to some small meeting, but the power is in God's word. When I got ready to preach a couple Sundays ago and I mentioned to you that they had no air conditioning, no lights, no sound, no nothing, no PowerPoint, all of that, they were worried because they thought, well, maybe you couldn't really preach. And I have to tell you that I looked at them and I said, it's not important that you see me. Maybe that's why we don't have a big screen with a television because I don't want you to look at all my nose hairs. But the Bible says this, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And when the Word of God is clearly presented accurately, anointed by the Spirit of God, God in His sovereignty will do what He can in the heart of that person to have them trust Christ as Savior. Now, I think we will all agree that not everyone who gets saved will ever have the kind of ministry that Charles Spurgeon had. But each one of us who will look to the Lord and look strictly at Him can be saved. Well, let's look back at these two seekers that were out there following John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, with the preacher style of evangelism, he simply says this, look to Jesus. And they decided to look to Jesus. Look back at the passage. It goes on to say here in verse 36, Behold the Lamb of God, verse 37, The two disciples heard John the Baptist speak, and they followed Jesus. Now when you read that, you need to know the drama behind that little phrase. So they did what John the Baptist said, and they decided to look to Jesus, so to speak, Behold the Lamb of God, and they began to follow Him. That's pretty dramatic. Sometimes I wonder how preachers sometimes week after week, they preach the word, they preach about Christ, they preach salvation. And people come and hear that, but they never behold Christ. 
And I hope that would never be said by any of you or any of those that will listen on the radio or on our website. That we would remember that it's not about those that are up here at the pulpit. It's all about the Lord. That you really would behold the Lamb of God. One of the best ways to test your Bible study to see, is it a Bible study with a lot of information? Or is it one that's going to point people to Christ? Is, is Jesus Christ at the center of every study? Are they pointing people to Christ? Those of you that will be looking for a church someday, you might be moving off island, military transfers, whatever it might be. I pray that when you go into the church, yes, you can look at the music, you can look at the cleanliness of the Sunday school classes and the bathrooms, and you can see the people and how much they love each other. But make sure that when you're there, that people that are in leadership, that are teaching God's word, are pointing people to Jesus Christ. But think about the drama that was going on with John the Baptist. Now, I've already gave you a message on the humility of John the Baptist. But notice what's happening. John the Baptist says, all right, now I want you to look to Jesus. These guys then left John the Baptist and decided to go follow Jesus. I think that's quite interesting because he was willing to transfer him off of that. And let me encourage you to do that. I pray that whoever you are, that you're not trying to develop followers after yourself. There's a great movement of disciple-making ministries today. And a lot of times they're asked, um, how many disciples do you have? Frankly, we should have no disciples of ourselves. Our job is to help people become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Do I hear a witness on that? It's not about following us. It's about them following Jesus Christ. So that's what's going on. So they decided, okay, we need to kind of check this little thing out. Now, if you go through the rest of this passage about Andrew and John here, here here's some interesting things. It says here in so the two disciples heard him speak, they followed him, and then Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is say when translated teacher, which means that he was probably speaking more to a Gentile audience that didn't know a whole lot about this, so he's now making sure that everybody knew what was happening here. So it said Rabbi, which is translated teacher. There are a lot of rabbis, a lot of teachers out there, but this mean teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. And they came and they saw where he was staying. So here's what I look at that, and I see this dialogue going back and forth, and these guys that followed John the Baptist are now following Jesus. That It tells me that perhaps that maybe John and, and Andrew were what we might call people-centered. They, they, they were concerned about a, a relationship. And so Jesus was, where are you? Where are you going? Come and see. Follow me. Be with me. See where I'm at. So there was that kind of a relationship going on. So he wanted to develop a relationship with these guys. So he's, he's marked by a, a people thing going on here. So he asked a simple question. What do you seek? Well, let's talk about that for just a moment. 400 years before Christ, there was a, a very intelligent person by the name of hypocrisy, Hippocrates. How many of you have ever heard of the Hippocratic Oath? That's the oath that you take as a doctor, that you're going to be true to your patient and true to their health care, etc. Well, Hippocrates... He was such so brilliant of an individual that he began to study human behavior of other people. And when he did, he basically said that while there'll be nuances of personalities and behavioral styles, they will generally roll in one of four areas. Now, you'll never be all one of each four, but you'll have a predominant in one of the four. He decided to give it Greek terms. And so 400 years before Christ, he said there are four personality styles. One is choleric, another is phlegmatic, another is sanguine, and another is melancholy. Now let's fast forward that 400 years ago and push it all the way to 1928. John Marston, who then was probably the father of behavioral science, human behavioral science, he then 
upticked all that study, the Hippocrates did, and he came up with the same conclusion, that there are primarily four basic personality styles. He then decided to use the same names, melancholy, phlegmatic, sanguine, and choleric. But with that, he said that even though we have those four styles, you're not going to be only all one. You're going to have a combination, but be more predominant one than the other. So he came up with them. Let's fast forward it. In the early 1970s, an individual by the name of Tim LaHaye, who has written the Left Behind series, was pastoring in Southern California. He took that same work and he came up with spirit-controlled temperaments for men, for women, for kids. And he showed, again, that there are four basic temperament styles that are out there. Now, for you, you're hearing words that you can hardly pronounce. Choleric, when you think of choleric, what do you think of? A crying baby on an airplane. I wonder what made me think of that one, but choleric. And then you have the one who's phlegmatic. And this is a person that tends to be very even keel. No highs, no lows, even keel. The sanguines are all about people. They like a party, etc. And then you have those of the melancholies that they tend to be very thoughtful and they might have a little bit of time with being so thoughtful they could get down, a little discouraged at times. And so he talked about those four styles. Since then, others have taken and they turn them into animals. You've got lions, beavers, otters, and all of that. I, change, I tend to like to use the D, I, S, and C. doesn't matter. What I'm really getting at is that we have various personality styles. If, in fact, that that is true, because this is all developed by men, probably women too in their study, if we look at this, we might be able to see this week and next week different personality styles. This particular style would be the people-centered one known as the sanguine. While I don't prefer to use that Greek term sanguine because the word sanguine sounds like, oh, I don't know, maybe some kind of syrupy, sweet, bubblehead, no thought, kind of a sanguine, kind of a wishy-washy type people person. I would like to tell you, though, that those of you that are here today probably do know those that they're very active, they like, they, they, they like to be around people, they like to talk most of the time, they dress flashy, they drive a flashy car sometimes. They're just very people-oriented, they like relationships. So here's what we would say. They're people-active. And you can put that in your margin. It could be that Andrew and John were like that because they were the first ones, they were part of the group. And what does John say? Behold, the Lamb of God. Andrew and John say says this, hey, who is this? What is this? And right away, people-oriented and all of this. And so Jesus comes back in his style, says, all right, if they're people-oriented, what do you want? Now, what I thought was interesting is that question, verse 38 there, is the very first question in the Gospel of John that Jesus asks. And he didn't ask, who do you seek? He said, what do you seek? So now he's going a little bit different. He says, what's going on in your heart? It could be that Andrew and John could be looking for a relationship. It could be Andrew and John, following John the Baptist, is looking for the forgiveness of sin. But what's your motives? Why are you here? Why do you want me? What do you seek? And so they said, well, first of all, we'd like to know where you're staying. Now, I don't really believe it's so much, um, hey, um, what motel are you at? No, it wasn't like that at all. It was more like, where are you staying? I think the context would say more to find out, I'd like to get to know you, Lord. I'd like to know what makes you tick. I want to know what's more behind what you're thinking about. It's late in the day, 10 o'clock maybe by certain times. And so I want to kind of be where you're at, maybe sit down and start talking to you. And notice what Jesus says to them. He comes back and he says, come and see. And so they came and they saw where he was staying and they remained with him that day. Now it's about the 10th hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Well, let me talk for just a moment about Andrew. 
But to do that, I need you to go to number two, because the second point out of the three guys we're studying today is Andrew and John, and the third one is going to be Simon Peter. So you could put Peter or Simon Peter there or Simon, and I'm going to open up that name Simon Peter to you in just a moment. But I want to go to that second person, which is Andrew, because I think this is very important here in reaching others for Christ. All right. I'm so glad that John the Baptist was, while he was preaching, says, Behold the Lamb of God. And he didn't say, Hey, guys, what, wait, you're going after Jesus. Wait, I'm not finished teaching you. He let them go. And when John and Andrew headed out, Andrew says, Oh, this is true, and I want to bring my brother. Now think about it for just a moment. Who is Andrew? All right. Some things about Andrew and Peter. All right. Peter, when he's listed in the list of disciples, Peter is always mentioned first. We know that Peter had a fishing business, and Andrew could have been a part of it, but it was Peter's fishing business. We know that Andrew stayed in Peter's house. We know that Andrew lived under the shadow of Peter. And yet when Andrew came to Christ, the very first person he wanted to bring to Christ was his own brother. So no matter how much he might have been involved in doing things, He wanted to be so committed to his family coming to know Christ as Savior. So what Andrew overcame was the traditions of the past and said, you know what, I need to come and bring my brother to the Lord. Now here's another thing about Peter. Peter was one who's written epistles, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. We know that when Jesus had his inner circle, it was Peter, James, and John. Yet it was Andrew who brought Peter to the Lord. You'll also notice that With Peter, there's even a city named after him called St. Petersburg. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 